Thanks, Luke. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verse, verse 9 this morning. Matthew 6, 9. Uh, George Mueller was a Christian evangelist and director of Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England during the 1800s. Uh, the name George Mueller has become legendary for his dependence solely upon the Lord in prayer. He has become a model for many Christians ever since in prayer. But interestingly, he was not always this way. In fact, Mueller himself testified to a change in his life that took place some years back in the approach to the way that he prayed. It radically changed his prayer life. He says this, a quote should be on the screen behind me. The difference then between my former practice and my present one is this. Formerly when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible. And generally spent all of my time till breakfast in prayer, or almost all the time. At all events, I almost invariably began with prayer. But what was the result? I often spent a quarter of an hour, or half an hour, or even an hour on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived comfort, encouragement, humbling of soul, etc., and often, after having suffered much from wandering of mind for the first ten minutes, or quarter of an hour, or even half an hour, I only then really began to pray. I scarcely ever suffer now in this way, for my heart, being nourished by the truth, being brought into experiential fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend, vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word, it often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see this point. The change that Mueller made was first to consult the scriptures. And then once he has become of sound mind and understands what the Lord is communicating about himself, then he begins in prayer time. We see it with George Mueller. We've seen it in Scripture. The, the way that you do something actually matters just as much as that you do it. The way you do something matters. When you're a kid, it's not good enough to just make your bed. The way you make your bed and the attitude with which you make your bed also matters. I found out the hard way. You can get in trouble even when you make your bed. <laughs> when you're married. <laughs> it's not good when you just hear groans. <laughs> when you're married, you can't just go to your spouse with a complaint or express some kind of criticism. The way you go to your spouse and express a criticism, the manner you do it, the attitude that you do it in, also matters. At work, I found that one out the hard way too, by the way. <laughs> At work, you most certainly have things that you have to do, that you're told you have to do, 
You know you have to do them, but the way that you do them matters as well. The attitude that you do them matters. You can do all the tasks perfectly, but if you do it with a terrible attitude, well, then it's worthless. Both the way and the attitude matters when you do any task. Well, this morning, we're beginning a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer. And in it, Jesus is showing us the right way to pray. The right way to come to the Lord. Now, this isn't about checking some boxes to make sure that we are all said the right things. We said the right phrases that we're supposed to say. This prayer has everything to do with the attitude with which you come to the Lord in prayer. The things that we say often indicate the heart attitude that we have when we say them. So when our heart, when our mind wanders, it's, our words wander, it's often an indicator of the fact that our heart and our mind are wandering away from the Lord as well. It's not just checking a box. Now with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this morning we'll be looking only at verse 9 this morning, but over the next few weeks we'll be going through verse by verse um, the entire Lord's Prayer, much like we did with the Beatitudes. If you were here when we went through the Beatitudes, we went through them uh, line by line. We're going to do the same thing through the Lord's Prayer. We'll read the whole thing every week, but then we'll only dive into just the one verse that morning. Now, a couple of things that I want you to notice as you look just broadly at the text that we just read. There are two sections present in what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions that we see there are in verses 9 and 10, and all of them concern God. His name, His kingdom, His will. The second three petitions all are about uh, man. In verses 11 through 13, all of them concern our needs, our daily food, our sins, and our temptations. There is a connection between the Lord's Prayer here and the passage that we read last week in Matthew 6, 5 to 8. Jesus, was, Jesus not only told us uh, how to pray, He told us how not to pray in the previous passage. He, he, he tells us don't pray like a pagan or like a hypocrite. The hypocrite has his heart set on his own glory, on people that will watch him pray, on the holiness credits that he gets whenever he prays from people that are around him. The pagan is convinced that God will listen to him because of, uh, of his eloquence, of his many words, and how impressive they are. And God himself will have to get out his dictionary to define some of the things, and he'll be quite impressed with this man's IQ, and will hear him and respond to him in his prayer. The point is that both of them have their hearts improperly set before they even go into prayer. Their hearts are improperly centered. They're in the wrong place. So the con- this is the context of, of chapter 6. 
we can expect that Jesus is attempting to recalibrate our hearts, to set them right, to change the way they even think about prayer. He's poking at our motivations for righteousness. And to be sure, he's going to take a sledgehammer to any selfishness that we would feel by the time we get to the end of this chapter. But in our text, uh, for the next few weeks, traditionally referred to as the Lord's Prayer, he's taking a brief excursus and talking about the right way to pray and the attitude with which you pray. So then he begins in verse 9 with, pray then like this. And we see in that context that the Lord, uh, of the Lord's Prayer, that it's meant to demonstrate the exact opposite of the prayers of the hypocrites and the pagans in the passage that just preceded it. The, the Lord's Prayer is meant to exemplify the desires of a heart that is not bent on self-centered motivations, that's not coming to the Lord in prayer because of self-centered motivations, a heart that's not desiring to attract attention from people, a heart not desiring to impress the Lord by what He's doing and what He's saying. So you'll notice that unlike the prayer of the hypocrites, of the hypocrites which want to be seen by others, the prayer is solely addressed to God. If you just look through that prayer, the one that's praying is confessing his inferiority to the Lord. He's laying that out there to the Lord. He's asking the Lord to provide for his daily bread. He's asking the Lord to forgive him of sins. In every aspect of this prayer, these are not things that you would want other people to hear you praying if you are a self-centered individual. You will also notice that unlike the Gentile prayer or the pagan prayer, that's long and impressive with its many words. The Lord's model of prayer is short. Praise the Lord for short prayers, right? <laughs> A short prayer, something even many people have memorized that you can recite even. It's praising God and asking Him for the things that you need daily. The Lord's prayer is, is, is meant to communicate a trust in the Lord which is is notably absent in the prayers of the pagans and the hypocrites. It's trust that your Father hears you, that He'll respond to you, that He loves you. There's often a question that we wrestle with from time to time when it comes to prayer, and that is, does prayer change anything? constantly have this idea, maybe even in your head when you're praying? Is, is the prayer that I'm praying even changing anything? We saw in verse 8, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so if that's the case, then shouldn't it come to our mind, what is the purpose of me even doing this then? If he already knows what I need before I ask him, is my prayer actually doing anything? Well, in the context of the prayer that we see, in the context of Matthew chapter 6, we can easily tell that this prayer is meant to change our own hearts as we pray. Prayer is, is absolutely changing things. It's changing things on the inside. Changing our hearts from an hypocritical or, or a pagan understanding of who God is into a right and Christian understanding of who God is. So throughout this study on the Lord's Prayer, we really want to understand 
the state of our hearts as we approach uh, God's throne in prayer. We want to do it the right way and for the right reasons. So in verse 9, there are three big ways that Christian prayer, just in verse 9 alone, there's three ways at least that Christian prayer is distinct and different from the prayers of pagans. The first is this, that we pray to a God who loves us and wants to hear from us. We pray to a God who loves us and who wants to hear from us. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God your Father 16 times in two chapters. 16 times He calls God your Father in two or three chapters. The first time is all the way back in chapter 5, verse 16, uh, right at the beginning of the sermon. Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times as I've preached through um, the Sermon on the Mount, but I've held off talking about it at length uh, until now. Last week I mentioned that this is it's a significant thing that we can call God our Father. It is a very significant thing. Um, and it's a big development in the mind of a Jew who would be hearing Jesus tell us to pray in this way. Um, today, we often take for granted the fact that God is our Father. We're used to calling Him Father. It's probably the most popular way to address God in all of our prayers. In fact, you'll hear some people say, even uh, extend it to the rest of the world, we're all children of God. But here's the thing in Scripture. The Bible is very careful, makes a very careful distinction about the way we refer to God as Father. There are some, uh, there are in some sense, uh, there is in some sense which God is everyone's Father. We see that in Malachi 2.10 where he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Like we see it also in Acts 17, 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Now, both of those verses attest to the fact that in some sense, we are all children of God. In the natural, you might even call it the physical sense, we are all God's offspring. We are created in His image. We're created by Him. And so therefore, in some sense, we are all, in a physical sense, we are all God's offspring. But I don't think that's the sense that Jesus is getting at here when He calls us to address Him as our Father. This is a spiritual sense in which Jesus is talking. Like He says in John eight forty two 42-44, Jesus says this, if God were your father, talking to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, your will, and your will is to do your father's desires. So, in the spiritual sense... Uh, God's children are at least three things in that passage that I just read from Jesus. According to Jesus, God's children are those that love Christ, for one. For two, God's children, His spiritual children, are those that love to hear His Word. They love Christ. They love to hear His Word. They love to be corrected and encouraged by the Scriptures, that kind of thing. And then the third thing is those that have the will to do their Father's desires. 
They have the will to do their father's desires. That's what it means to be a spiritual child of God. For him to be your spiritual father. You love to obey him. So it is possible to have God as a a physical father in that you were created by him, but not as a spiritual father. It's possible to be in that situation. Jesus here is speaking in the spiritual sense that we are spiritually his children. And we know that because of how the prayer unfolds throughout uh, this, this passage that we read this morning. How the prayer unfolds. It's concerned with doing his will, submitting to his law. Isn't it? That's what he's desiring. That's what we're praying for. And so we know that he's talking about us being his children in the spiritual sense because we're desiring to do his will. That's what fleshes out in the prayer itself. So that is to say, in prayer, your heart is recognizing God as your father. But for the people listening to Jesus preach, calling God as father is a reaffirmation of a very traditional concept in the Old Testament. Jews understood God as father. And the New Testament is going to take that image of father and expound on it and tell us more about what it means. Jesus is going to tell us in the next chapter, chapter 7, if you then are who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is the sense in which God is our Father, that He's caring, that He's loving, that He reaches down to us. So much is conveyed to us in just those two words, our Father. In our hearts, we aren't to approach God as a kind of abusive, alcoholic father, like some children fear. That's not the kind of of person that we're looking at. That's not the kind of, of God that we're looking at, some abusive God. That's how the pagans respond to their gods. That's how the pagans come to their gods, cutting themselves and sacrificing their children. They're always in fear that they've made God angry, that He's going to take vengeance out on them, that He's going to tighten His fist and pulverize them to oblivion. It's not the kind of God that we serve. He's going to come up again as we talk about trespasses in this prayer. The second way that a A Christian prayer changes our hearts so that our prayers are distinct from the prayers of the pagans is that we pray to a God who has the resources of heaven. We pray to a God who has the resources of heaven at his disposal. Just as God is near to us, he's our father, he's close to us, he is also transcendent. Though he is our father, He is different than us. He is omnipotent. We are not. Meaning He is all-powerful. We are not. He is omniscient. He knows all. And we do not. The phrase, in heaven, isn't merely about a physical location. Jesus isn't telling us the address that you mail your prayers to. That's not what He's telling us. 
He's not giving us that idea. God is in heaven, and therefore you send your prayers that way. We know, for instance, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. Another way to think about that is nothing can contain Him. Nothing can contain Him, not even heaven. He's everywhere all at once. There's nowhere that can contain Him. So we know that Jesus isn't trying to simply give us some instructions on where to send our prayers. No, we reminded that our Father, to whom we are praying, is at the command of all of heaven's resources. As we just read, Jesus will say in the next chapter, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you, to those who ask Him? It's not another subtle reminder at the outset of, of, of the prayer to whom we're praying. Our God is not merely in control of the rain, but has no say over the seas. He's not merely in control of the sun, but has no say over the crops, whether they grow or not. The God that we serve, into whom we are praying, all of this is in the palm of His hand. And we call Him Father, and because we are His children, He will not spare any of those resources if His children ask Him. As I said earlier, George Mueller ran an orphanage in England in the 1800s. And Mueller uh, took copious notes of everything that he prayed and everything that he asked God for. Specifically wrote them down, all the things that he asked God for. And then he recorded God's answer to those prayers. It's very fascinating when you look over his life. Through his orphanage in Bristol, Mueller cared for as many as 2,000 orphans at one time. And 10,000, an estimated 10,000 orphans in his lifetime he cared for. Four different ministries he ran, this was one of them. Yet he never, get this, he never made the needs of the ministry known to anyone except God. Think about that for just a second. He never made the needs of the ministry known to anyone Accept God in prayer. Mueller had, by the end of his life, over 50,000 specific requests with recorded answers from God. 30,000 of them, he said, recorded uh, answers within the same day and many of them the same hour. We're talking sometimes when the orphanage would not have food and the kids would sit down at the table and give thanks for the food that God had not yet provided. And there would be a knock at the door of a baker with bread. Or a milk truck that breaks down right in front of his house. To provide milk for the kids. Mueller said this about our Father in heaven. Through reading of the word of God. And especially through meditation on the word of God the believer becomes more and more acquainted with the nature and character of God and thus sees more and more besides His holiness and justice what a kind, loving, gracious, merciful, mighty, wise, and faithful being He is and therefore 
in poverty, affliction of body, bereavement in his family, difficulty in his service, want of a situation or employment, he will trust the ability of God to help him. Because he has not only learned from his word that he is of almighty power and infinite wisdom, but he has also seen instance upon instance in the Holy Scriptures in which his almighty power and infinite wisdom have been actually exercised in helping and delivering his people. But I doubt that many in our churches have experienced this kind of generous God that Mueller describes here. We spend most of our time praying in generalities. Give that person peace. Help that family. There's nothing wrong in general praying like that. They're prayers for which if God did provide an answer, we might not even know it. We spend so little time asking for specific things that we need, and perhaps it's because we're afraid that God would say no. I could tell you some stories of some things that have happened in my life that to me are hair-raising And there's absolutely no explanation other than the Lord answered my prayer and said yes. But sadly, I can tell you far more times in my life where I have tried and planned and schemed and got frustrated before I ever turned to the Lord to ask Him for help. To believe that if it was his will, he would open up the storehouses of heaven and provide it. Because he's my father. I'm his son. He loves me. And he's he's never lacking in anything, much less resources. But you might be thinking... Has pastor started reading Joel Osteen books? (laughs) Do we need to check his library? There is a wicked perversion of what I'm talking about that falls under the category uh, name it and claim it. Uh, You might hear this from time to time. It's part of the word of faith movement that's not at all what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not talking, I'm talking about positioning our hearts by first understanding who God is and what we're doing here in prayer. We're asking the Lord for things we we need. We're not naming and claiming anything. It's ludicrous to think, think, think about that. Think about it that way. I'm not God. I don't own the storehouses of heaven. It's ludicrous to think that I could name and claim anyone or anything that is entirely His possession. You ever walk up to somebody else's car and tell them that you're claiming their stereo? It doesn't work like that. You can't name and claim those things. That's not how it works. But what keeps our prayers from devolving into 
these asking for Ferraris and bigger yachts and things like that? What, what keeps our prayers from actually doing that? Much like the prayers of the pagans. What keeps our prayers from doing that? I think the answer is in the third point, which is the last little bit of our text. Our biggest desire is for God's fame to spread. Our biggest desire is for God's fame to spread. This is how verse 9 ends with Jesus praying, Hallowed be your name. Now, we don't use the word hallowed much anymore. It's an old English word. It means to make holy or set apart. Hallowed, to make holy or to set apart. This is a request. God, uh, Jesus is, is praying a request to God to make his name holy. But of course, as you well know, God's name is already holy. What does he mean then? Make your name holy. Well, his name is already holy. His name is already set apart. This is a request for the name of God to be reverenced, to be made holy in our own hearts. That's what he's asking for. For God's name to be made holy in our own hearts and in the hearts of men and women around us. God, make your name holy in my heart and in the hearts of people around me. It could be translated, let your name be kept holy. The Jews had, and probably still have, I, I, I do believe, a way to ensure that this was done as they would read the text of Scripture. They, they, they take the literal name of the Lord, Yahweh, and anytime they come upon it in Scripture, they don't read it. Because the fear is that they would read it and at the same time they might uh, think of some sin and then God's name would be, would be equated with, uh, with unrighteousness and so they would simply skip over it and they would, they would instead just refuse to read it. And so anytime they come across the name Yahweh in Scripture, instead they supply the word Adonai which means Lord, but in sort of a generic sense. So it's not a personal name, it's now just a, a, a general title that means Lord. They even went so far as to remind people in the text. So if you read the text to, to this day in the Hebrew Bible, you will see that every time you come across the name of the Lord, of the, of the Lord Yahweh, it's, they take the, name, the, the consonants of the word Yahweh and they take the vowels of the word Adonai and they squeeze the vowels of the word Adonai in between the consonants of the word Yahweh and we come out with Jehovah. That's where the name Jehovah comes from. That's why we say Jehovah, or why some people say Jehovah. It's an attempt to literally set apart the name of the Lord. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that that doesn't catch the spirit of what Jesus is actually talking about here. Names are more than mere titles. Names are associated with people. They convey the meaning of someone's character, their very nature. It's closely associated with the person, so closely associated that to disgrace the name is often to disgrace the actual person themselves. This is how we typically think of our last name. It's the name of your family. Uh, you were probably told, or at least I was, before we'd go in the grocery store when I was a kid, my mom would tell me, boy, don't you act a fool, right? Don't you embarrass me in that store. Don't make me have to take you out. 
when I went to college, my mom told me, don't embarrass the family. (laughs) (laughs) The idea behind both of those is that you carry a name with you. And that name implicates many other people who share that name. And if you bring shame upon that name, it brings shame upon all those people uh, associated with it and the people that carry that name because of the actions of a few. Well, here is God, creator of all. His name is holy. His name is just. His name is righteous and pure. And He is deserving of of worship and there are people created by him and in his image that do not worship him so the request from jesus is that god's name be holied or be hallowed in the hearts of all people but look at what jesus is doing here In teaching us to pray, he's adjusting our hearts. He's adjusting our hearts as we enter into prayer. And he's teaching us how our prayers should be grounded. They should be connected to the hallowing of the the spreading and the furthering of God's name. That's how our prayers should be grounded. Remember what I've said the purpose of the church is purpose of the church is to worship God. That's that's our purpose. Here, as a church body, that's the purpose of the church globally. That's the purpose of every Christian is to worship God. The secondary purpose that we have is to bring other people into that worship. God is primary. We exist to worship Him. Man is secondary. We want to bring others into right worship of God. And so the way that I phrase that around here is making and maturing disciples for His glory. We make and mature disciples. That's our secondary purpose. For what purpose? For what main purpose? For God's glory or for the worship of God. We make and mature disciples for His glory. Jesus is teaching us here that even in our prayers, they should be grounded in such a way That our foremost desire, the foremost desire of my heart going into prayer is that the name of God be hallowed in the world around me. Think of anything that you need right now. Think of anything that you need. How is that thing, whatever it is, connected to God's name being hallowed? You remember in Numbers when God just wants to destroy the people of Israel. He's had it with them. He's fed up. And he is ready to unleash havoc and judgment on them. They were grumbling. God does not like grumbling. He does not like complaining. They were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And he really doesn't like them grumbling and complaining against his leaders. And so he's ready to kill them. He's ready to step in and end them right then. And Moses intercedes for the people that God is ready to kill. But I want you to observe how Moses talks to God. It's in Numbers chapter 14. It should appear on the screen behind me. Numbers 14, and it starts in verse 15. Listen to how Moses 
really intercedes, prays for even, the people of God. He says, now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. You see that? Moses' foremost concern was not for the people, but for the name of God. Moses' foremost concern was not for the people. Have you ever been around grumbling people? I'm sure Moses was kind of okay in some ways with, with God doing that and punishing them. They're rejecting him. I'm sure he was frustrated too. His concern is not for the people. His concern is that the name of the Lord would be profaned amongst the Egyptians and the rest of the world. Brothers and sisters, are our hearts in the right place in prayer? Is that our foremost desire? For God's name to be hallowed. Does that desire inform our request? Does that change the things that we pray about? Does it change the way we pray about those things? Does it change the fervency with which we pray about those things? The hallowing of God's name. Are we too busy, in other words, praying for toys and gimmicks? Praying that we would truly have our best life now. Are we too busy praying for those things? To even consider the hallowing of God's name. This is the grounding that keeps our prayers from devolving into champagne wishes and caviar dreams. But please understand, this is not some way of manipulation. This isn't a way of saying, well, if you really want to get what you want, then you have to say it this way, and you have to do it that way, and then there's these magic kind of things that you sprinkle on the prayer, and then all of a sudden, bam. No. Your heart must be set on the hallowing of God's name. If, it's, if it is set on the hallowing of God's name, ask and it will be given to you. Friends, Jesus is commanding that our hearts be in this place. But I want us to think just, just for a second. I want us to connect this to some real world uh, things. Some, some real world application here where, where we get to that desire and it informs our, our prayers and it, it challenges us to pray, maybe even for some different things. Now, if this is the foremost desire that God's name be proclaimed far and wide, let's think about some of the things that we should, we should pray for. Northridge Baptist Church is just behind us down the road, probably about, I don't know, a mile maybe. Almost right directly behind us. And it's uh, not too far from closing its doors. And I think 
that would be a tragedy. And to be quite honest with you, I'm tired of hearing scoffers constantly talking about the church in America and how it's dying. And I don't like looking at churches that are out there that are dying, to be honest with you. I hate it. I think it's a tragedy, and it should be fixed. And it should be fixed by churches who actually desire those churches, even though they're a mile down the road to flourish. It should be fixed by pastors who train up people in their own churches and send them out there to put in a faithful pastor in that pulpit. But too often, we're, we're so concerned with our own name. Well, if a church down there flourishes and they're only a mile, or if North River right over here flourishes, or if Trinity Press just down the road flourishes, then what does that mean for us? What happens to our church? Is it going to die? I don't know. What I desire is for the Lord's name to be hallowed. And more churches and more pastors that get that idea and begin directing their churches in that aspect of the Christian life, the more his name will be hallowed in our community. So then, let me ask you, are we willing then to join in prayer for Northridge, for Trinity Prez, for North River, for the churches that are preaching the gospel around here? That they would succeed and they would flourish and they would grow and they would burst at the seams. That revival would break out in their churches. It seems like sometimes we really want revival, but we want it to be, as long as it's in our, within our walls... As long as it expands our coffers. As long as it's part of our church, God, do amazing work, but do it at EBC. Instead of praying, Lord, do an amazing work and let me be a part of it. Whatever that means. Let me be a part of it. So then where is, if that's our prayer, then where is church competition? Where is it? vanishes completely. Going into prayer and praying for the success and the flourishing of this church at the expense of the churches around it is a tragedy. That's not the right attitude. Our students are back, and college students, and we're grateful to have them. We, we really miss you guys when you're gone. Uh, there's a big hole there. <laughs> um, and so we're glad you're back and you, your college years are some of the best years of your life um, it's a swing that you don't get to swing twice you get it once all right now some will take eight years and that's okay that's okay we love you we're encouraging you and it's good you, but it's just one swing and you know that it's a special time in your life but it's also a very trying time in your life. It's a time of a lot of decisions. And it's a lot of important decisions. And sometimes those decisions you feel ill-equipped to make. Because you have to make these lifelong decisions at 18 to 22. 
And you're, you're looking at the future and you're thinking all kinds of things like, what, what major do I pick? That's going to set me up for a career. What career do I pick? Do I know for sure that I want to go into that career? Do I want to waste college education? Do I want to do all of these kinds of things because I, I chose wrong when I was 18 to 22? What kind of thing is going to make me happy? So many questions that are floating around in your mind and so many of which you, can't, you feel like you can't answer right now because you don't know what the future holds. So you ask the Lord, give me a sign. Lord, give me a sign. And you change your major 14 times before you graduate. The sign that the Lord gave you was a U-turn. You just, you just keep U-turning. Instead of thinking of your future career as the thing that you're heading towards and that you're deciding on right now, Think of your career as one way in which you will spread the fame of the Lord. Amen. Think of your career as just one way. It's just one way that you will spread the fame of the Lord. That your target is set on His name. And I'm going to spread His name. I'm going to do that. And my career is just one thing that will support that. You want to be an engineer? Sure. But then what? What happens next? How will that degree, that job, lead to the name of God being sanctified in the hearts and minds of the people that you come in contact with? And it can and it will, but you need to think about that now. You graduate with a degree in music. Like every, every, all the music majors are here, I guess. Which is great. You graduate with a degree in music. And people are going to ask you that dreaded question. They always ask you, what are you going to do with that? Right? You hear that? I'm sure you've heard that question. What are you going to do with that? Don't answer that question first. Don't answer that question in your mind first. It probably needs to be answered at some point. But don't answer that one first. First, I want you to consider something. God's agenda for the world is that people from every tribe and language and nation and people will worship Him. That is God's agenda. It's clearly laid out in Scripture. That is what He is doing. What part are you going to play in it? That's the question you need to answer first. What part am I going to play in that? Now, I don't care if your job is playing piano or mixing chemicals in a beaker. I don't know if that's an actual job, but it sounded like a job to me. What part are you going to play in God's agenda? Now, that's not only accomplished in full-time ministry. God's agenda is being accomplished right now in and through His local church with a whole bunch of people that do not work ministerial jobs but work all the other eight to five jobs. This has been his plan from the beginning to bring worshipers to himself. And so the question is, what part am I going to play in it? And if you're going to be an engineer, why not be an engineer in a city where there's complete and total darkness? They need engineers everywhere. Why not be one where the city is in complete and total darkness like Portland? Where you can faithfully serve a church plant all the churches out there are church plants. 
All of them are relatively new. All of them are on the verge of dying. Why not be an engineer there? Why not leverage your future career, perhaps in locations that are spiritually dead? You don't think a, uh, being a Christian engineer in a society where a church is completely absent isn't going to have an impact on your coworkers? You bet it is. It absolutely is. So don't define success by the kind of job you get when you get out of college or the major that you pick now. Think about what part I'm going to play in God's name being spread around the world. What part am I going to play in that? The rest will take care of itself. Brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, not only is God your Father, but He loves you, He cares for you, and He will provide your every need. I really believe that. But if you're followers of Jesus Christ, then our hearts should be set toward His fame being broadcast from the poorest neighborhoods in our city to the richest, from the tiniest villages in the remotest parts of China to our own next-door neighbors. Now, I ask you, what would happen if the congregation of Emmanuel Baptist Church or Northridge or any of the churches that are preaching the gospel, if, what would happen if all of our hearts were set to that agenda, to spreading the fame of the Lord? How far would we go? How many resources would we spend? What kinds of ministries would we be involved in? How much time would we actually set outside of our schedule to accomplish these kinds of tasks? How many dangerous neighborhoods would we walk into with the hope of sharing the love of Christ? How many sick and downtrodden people would we talk to with the hope that they too will come to worship Him? This is God's agenda. Our job as the church is to get along with Him. To do it with him. To play a part with him. Because though he is our father, though he is our father in heaven, he does not live in a temple made by hands as though he needed anything. He does not serve us. We serve him. Though he is our father, he does not need us. If we're on board with his agenda, then I think his name will spread. And we pray to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that our whole concept is wrong. Our whole thought process is wrong. The way we even think about church sometimes is wrong. Lord, I confess that even in my own heart, there is this 
field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. And it's just not true. Nor is that the way we want growth. We want people that before now have not worshipped you to worship you. We want to be a part of that. Help us, Lord, to get on board with that. Help us to see that that's our purpose. That that's your agenda. We want to join you in it. Lord, convict us where our thoughts about what you're doing in this community are errant. Lead us to repentance. To faith. Knowing that you're going to push us into places we're really uncomfortable with. To spend money that we're really uncomfortable spending. To think about people in a way we're really uncomfortable with. To interact with people that we're not used to spending time around. Lord, all of it's for not if we're just checking a box. Please, give us hearts that are set on fire with a desire to hallow your name and to see others hallow your name. May we live our lives in reverence to your name. May we put away crass talk, abusive and harsh language. May we put away divisiveness. May we put away minor discrepancies and instead all get on board with what you are doing in the world around us. Lord, I pray for Northridge. It would be a travesty to the name of Christ to see a church close its doors. Gospel preaching has gone on there in the past, and it can in the future. If you will be so kind as to grant its success, please restore it. Please put a pastor in there that's faithful to preaching the word, loves the people of his church, that desires the conversion of the people in the community to Christ, that desires more than anything to see Tuscaloosa hallow the name of the Lord. Please do that. Please present us with opportunities that we might have to help Northridge get to that point. For that matter, we pray for North River, Trinity Prez, for churches that are preaching the gospel. I pray that you would give them success, 
that you would allow their church to flourish with people that are coming to know the Lord left and right, people that are growing as disciples of Christ. Give their pastors clarity and wisdom to preach the word with conviction and to trust you to bring any kind of growth. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.